Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Toronto Mayor John Tory has announced the beginning of reforms to Toronto's police services. Should the city of Hamilton be doing the same thing? And before heading back to school, some school boards are trying to get a handle on outbreak protocols and funding for reduced class sizes. We'll get some details and the impacts of that. And Kamala Harris is officially in as Joe Biden's running mate for the 2020 election. How's that going to change the campaign? It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Police reorganization. Now, the uh, different phraseology here. You know, defunding police is one of the, the the hue and cry that we hear from some groups, and uh, in different municipalities. And uh, it's it's a topic of concern uh, because of some of the reports that have come out about about uh, racism and uh, and basically about the work that police are doing. Uh, editorial today in the London Free Press, another editorial in the Hamilton Spectator. Well, and of course in Toronto, uh, where they've had some major concerns, uh, they have recently released a report about uh, reorganization of uh, Toronto Police Services. Uh, Toronto Mayor John Tory was front and center talking about that, and uh, Global News, actually, uh, Brianna Carnegie was at that and gives us this report about what Toronto's doing. We know the time for reform is now. The recommendations on police reform in Toronto includes reallocating funding to alternate community safety response models. This is something we heard a lot about uh, in the town halls held by the Police Services Board. Other recommendations include increased transparency around the police budget and mandatory training on fair and unbiased policing. Mayor John Tory says Toronto wants a police service that works for everyone. And that will be good for the police as well because it will rebuild the trust that is so fundamental to the effective, safe and fair carrying out of their important duties. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. Thank you, Brianna. Uh, the, the question, of course, that a lot of people are going to have, uh, is that Toronto example a template that other co- police services can use? And does it go far enough to address some of the concerns that people have? Uh, to get a proper answer on that, we also have to have some insight into what police service boards are all about. Uh, what role does city council have to play in this situation? Uh, let's bring in somebody who uh, has experience in both of those things, former Hamilton Mayor Larry Diani, who, of course, was also uh, on the police services board during his time as mayor. He joins us here at the Bill Kelly Show to talk about what might happen and, uh, and, and some of the protocols, I guess. Larry, thank you for the time. Great to have you with us today. Hey, Bill, it's always a pleasure. Let's talk a little bit about this and, and the nuts and bolts of this. And, and we've, we've heard from a number of people in the community, and I know that City Council is going to have a meeting and where they're going to take uh, uh, observations from the public. That's going to be a long one, I guess, because they've got a long list of people that want to speak to this issue. Uh, but to get a better understanding of this, we have to understand what the Police Services Board is really there for, what their responsibilities are, what they can and cannot do. Maybe you could shed some light on that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, first of all, the police services, um, they, uh, they adhere to the Police Services Act. And part of that is a, an arm's length, uh, organization called the Police Services Board to which the police respond. And, um, and, um, uh, city council, uh, is important in that, uh, because it actually provides the money through taxpayer funds to run the organization, and it appoints people on the police services board. We have three members of council on the board, the mayor, who happens to be the chair of the board as well, uh, Councillor Jackson and Councillor Collins this term, as well as a provincial representative and community representatives that are appointed uh, both by the province uh, and council appoints the community rep as well. 
these folks um, are an oversight uh, body to the police service. Now, the police service um, uh, adheres to the uh, to the police services act, as I've said, and enforces the laws that are structured in uh, and by the political entities uh, to keep the community safe. And really, that's their mandate: is to keep the community safe. And so, when people talk about defunding the police, um, which to me, um, uh, in, in fact, some people talk about abolishing the police. To me, that is just utter craziness uh, because we do have people who break the law and we want to keep communities safe and therefore the police have to adhere to the laws um, in, in order to do that. Now, having said that, um, reform is always good. Uh, police organizations as well as councils as well as any entity uh, is a dynamic organization, and any time that you could improve it by reforming it, uh, that is always good. But the reforms have to make things better. They don't have to make things worse. And so when I hear some counselors who have high crime rates in their wards encouraging those who want to abolish the police, it just makes my head shake, quite frankly. And so, you know, Toronto has tabled some reforms, um, and uh, Hamilton, I'm sure, will do similar things, uh, and that's all well and good. But the focus needs to be on community safety, not the abolishment of those who enhance community safety. There, uh, there's another word I'm going to throw out here that I know you've heard a lot of, especially during this debate, Larry, and that's transparency. Uh, and, and you've, I think, laid out very nicely exactly what the responsibilities of the Police Services Board are and the fact that the police chief answers to the Police Services Board, not to Hamilton City Council, although some people feel, well, that's kind of a disconnect because the, you know, the money comes from City Council, but they don't seem to have uh, a whole lot of say in that. But they do by representation, of course, with, the, as you mentioned, the members of council that are on the Police Services Board. But when you come into something like that and people are saying defund, uh, when they don't even have a, a, many of them anyway, probably don't have a basic understanding of what the police budget is all about. Uh, but transparency is the word people come, come back to. I mean, council is supposed to have transparency about what they're going to spend, what they're going to do, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there doesn't seem to be that kind of transparency often with police budgets, and and, and which and you've heard this from councillors, and of course yeah. when that, that budget comes forward, and certainly from members of the community. Well, absolutely, and and transparency is absolutely important. And so we know what the police services are given. What we don't know sometimes are some of the details and how they use that money. And we cannot know that uh, because there's some good justification for keeping some of those funds secret. So, for example, if they have an organized crime unit, uh, do we want organized crime to know whether there are sufficient funds uh, to uh, to uh, investigate uh, that group of folks. Um, and, and there are other uh, uh, entities within the police services that need to be kept confidential for operational reasons. Uh, however, we do know what money is given. So we know the bottom line. Uh, we also know the programs that they run. So, for example, Toronto is saying that they want to enhance um, other agencies looking after some of the calls that the police now get, especially around mental health. That's well and good. Now, Hamilton's been doing that for quite some time. I don't know whether Toronto's been doing it to the same extent, but Hamilton has been doing that for quite some time. And, uh, you know, they have a navigator program. They have uh, uh, a mental health people who uh, attend uh, some police calls if uh, indeed there is uh, 
some aspect of mental health that needs to be looked after. And, uh, and uh, I, if you can enhance that, if you want to enhance that, that's, that's I think, uh, well and good as well. As long as you maintain all of those safeguards for community and neighborhood uh, well-being, uh, whether it's, it's you know, uh, people who speed too much, whether it's uh, elder abuse, whether it's child abuse, whether it's um, uh, uh, the abuse of spouses, I mean, all of those programs are run by the police, and they need to be run by the police. If you want to enhance the mental aspect of it, you know, I say this to to some of the folks that I speak with who make a a case for enhancing mental health uh, support. You can do that. There's nothing to stop council or the province uh, from enhancing mental health budgets. You don't have to rob from Peter to pay Paul, because if you rob from Peter... The, and, and Peter being the police in this case, you may be weakening those the, the very fabric of community safety that we all count on as well. Bill, I was on council for 25 years, almost. You were there for a long time. I don't ever remember people saying to me, we want less police. They always wanted to see more police, and whether it's for speeding or other issues, break-ins and so on, uh, the police presence was always wanted. You know, I heard the debate the other day where where they're constructing a station, a police station in Waterdown. Uh, I heard those laments when I was involved politically that Waterdown wanted more presence. Now they're getting it. And that's just going to cost more money. It's going to uh, allocate, reallocate funds. And I think people will welcome that. So when, you know, these young people, idealistic as they are, they envision uh, a, a world without police, you also have to envision a world without crime. Unfortunately, you know, Joseph Conrad, the great uh, novelist, uh, said that you need a policeman in every corner to check some of our baser instincts. Now, we don't want to see a policeman in every corner, but we certainly don't want to f- weaken the, 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 very, the very entity that provides us the safety that we need. He realized the problem, though, and I, I don't disagree with anything you've said there, but people have a, uh, some people anyway have a much different opinion uh, and perspective on situations like that. And, and again, to go back to our days on council, uh, we heard from community members that said, look, we needed more of a police presence around there. That's why we developed community policing stations. Uh, we had one in Concession, you had one in Stony Creek. I, remember the hue and cry when Dundas decided to close their police station downtown, and people were just yes. apoplectic about that. But yes. the other concern and the other side of that debate now is that they're saying, you know what? That might have been then, but this is now, and, and we don't need that anymore. I mean, look at what happened with the school liaison program that was really developed here in Hamilton many years ago. Now, all yeah. of a sudden, uh, because of the pushback, they said, you don't need that anymore. As a matter of fact, it's not, not only is it not helping, it's really hurting the situation, which begs the question here, Larry, why aren't we having an open discussion about that and about, as you say, uh, reevaluating what police's resp- what the police responsibility is and what they should be doing? That may, in fact, have a, a, an impact on the budget, and probably it will if you say, okay, you, you really shouldn't be doing that. That's not a priority for police. Uh, that's somebody else's job. But uh, in, instead of simply saying, well, let's just take money away from that and, and then just, you know, what happens to our society? We, we do not live in a utopian society. No, we don't, and and I, I agree with you that uh, that all programs need to be reviewed. I mean, I was a principal of a high school as well. We valued uh, the police came to the school. There did very little enforcement, by the way. but did a lot of uh, 
um, education presentations for staff and students. Uh, very rarely did we ask them to intervene in uh, in an enforcement capacity. Sometimes we did, especially when we had visitors from out of school uh, who were there to either peddle drugs or or start fights. And then we, you know, the police presence helped us in that as well. But every program needs to be reviewed, and and you know the whole debate around uh, uh, racism uh, that's also happening in the city Hamilton. I, I mean, uh, it pains me whenever I, I hear those stories, and and obviously we want everybody to feel safe and secure. But simply um, to say that because someone is wearing a uniform or has a particular role and is following some laws that have been generated by the political class, by the way, and the police are mandated to enforce those laws, just because of who they are, they're not welcome. That doesn't build a, uh, a society where uh, we have more cohesion. That builds a society where we have uh, tremendous division and suspicion, and, uh, and uh, I don't think it's a safer society for anybody at all. Now, having said that, you know, review the programs. Uh, if there are uh, bad actions happening, we saw some, especially in the United States, uh, with some very, very uh, criminal activity on the part of, in my estimation, on the part of the police uh, that have led to some of the protests that we're seeing now. Those should absolutely be eradicated. And police services need to be inclusive. They need to represent the community. They need to be diverse. Uh, they need to understand uh, different faiths as well as different cultures. Uh, but we can get there. We don't have to eliminate them in order to get there. Um, we don't have to hurt them in order to get them uh, to get there. And I, I suspect that a lot of the animus that people have is driven by their fear and suspicion rather than wanting to make things better. They want to punish. And, you know, you punish an entity that keeps us safe, we're all going to suffer. And, and, under, and I think part of the discussion has to be understanding the intent of, of, of reevaluating in situations like that, uh, because I, from my perspective, I, yeah, I agree that we need to do that and go through that process, but not because police aren't doing a good job. Uh, I don't think anybody's suggesting, for instance, the, your idea about the, the mental health calls that they, they are responding to right now. Uh, I have rarely, if ever, heard anybody say, well, they, that was terrible. They shouldn't have been there. They, they, they're compassionate. They're empathetic. And as you say, they usually have a trained professional with them when they re respond to those calls. Does that necessarily mean it was a bad thing to do? No, but it might be something that somebody else can handle. Uh, and, and your point's well taken. I mean, every department that works for the city should have that discussion on an ongoing basis. And I'm assuming the police do. But the fact is, is they do it, you know, in, in, without the transparency that the community would like to know. Uh, trust is the key word here, and if, if we don't know what they're doing or why they're doing it, it's pretty hard to, to, to try to build that trust. I agree, and they need to work on that. Every entity needs to work on that. City council needs to work on that. I mean, you know, we've seen criticisms of council um, as uh, as it pertains to LGBTQ um, uh, plus communities, and, and people think that some members of council, if not all of council, has fallen short on that. So you need to always reevaluate what you're doing, how you're doing it, what effect it's having, whether it's helping or hurting, and make the appropriate changes. And I'm sure that the police is no exception to that. In fact, they are they are they, they need to do it even more because of their very special role and their and their powers. I mean, you know, they have the power to take life under certain circumstances. So we want to have transparency. We want to have accountability. We want to have them review a use of force laws and make sure that they're not targeting folks uh, based on the color of their skin or their culture or their religious 
uh, affiliations, but they're enforcing the laws in order to keep the community safe, which is their overall mandate. But all of that can be done in a, in a way that, that is helpful rather than in a way that's divisive. You know, council is going to be hearing from people who want to defund the police. I can tell you what we're going to hear. I'll bet you most of the presentations that are going to be made are from individuals who want to see the police defunded and, in some cases, even abolished. Uh, and those, as, as many presentations as we have, and I understand we have over 30, I'll bet you they will not be representative of the larger community spirit, which is we want an effective, fair, just, and, um, and uh, well-resourced, but not overly resourced, police presence in our community because it affects my safety and the safety of, of uh, my family, my children, grandchildren, and so on. Those folks will not go to city council to speak. They'll assume that people of uh, goodwill will make the right decisions. So we're going to hear from those uh, with a perspective that's different from that, and well and good, it's their right to offer that perspective. But let's not assume that just because 30 people or 30 individuals and associations are going to come forward that they represent the 537,000 people in the city of Hamilton. Well, we're going to see what happens and how uh, council and, for that matter, police services respond. Larry, as always, thanks so much for the time. Great to uh, having we on the program today to get us that perspective. Thank you, Bill. Former Hamilton Mayor Larry DeAnne. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday on the program, we had uh, Manny Figueroa on. He is the uh, Director of Education for the Hamilton Board of Education, Public Board. Uh, expressing some serious concerns about the back-to-school uh, policies that are being enacted by the provincial government, the Ford government uh, rolling out uh, to get kids back into the classroom. And uh, a lot of what uh, Manny Figueroa had to say yesterday is being echoed by boards right across the province. Here's a slight sampling of it. So if everyone returns in elementary and parents said we're all coming back and not choosing remote and our class size max would be around 15, what would be the implication for us in, in our school board, and we said we would need potentially around 900 additional classroom teachers, and that would approximately cost us around $76 million, which is correct, which which we don't have. Uh, who does have that kind of money? Class size seems to be the issue. As a matter of fact, there are some teachers' federations now that are actually threatening legal action against the province if they don't reconsider the idea about class sizes. Uh, let's... Uh, bring uh, Professor uh, Ailman into the conversation. Uh, Professor Dion Ailman is an associate professor in the Department of Mechanical and Industrial Engineering at the University of Toronto. Professor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. I'm happy to be here. I, I, I was never great at math, but I, I, I'm going to pose a mathematical question to you. Uh, if, if we adhere to what the, the medical experts are talking to us about, about social distancing uh, and, and trying to maintain, you know, that specific aspect of this to try to keep the, the virus under control, how can you put 35 kids in a classroom and, and expect them to be social distanced? Well, it would have to be a really big classroom. Yeah. And, I, and my experience uh, in classrooms is that they're usually not uh, that large. Um, so class size is really something that uh, if the government truly intends to to impose physical distancing restrictions within schools, uh, class size has to be very tightly monitored and has to be um, developed not just a, a flat number of 15, but it has to be in relation to the actual size of the specific rooms that uh, the students will be in. 
I'm, uh, I'm, I'm glad that there are some politicians, especially on this side of the border, that are adhering to the scientific evidence and in developing policies. And, and some of the policies I know can be somewhat problematic and they can be uh, you know, a, a bother to some people, but it's all for the right reasons. But they seem to be ignoring this element of the science. Uh, I, I, I saw one person trying to explain it away, one of the government officials the other day, saying, well, we want them, you know, if they're going to have recess, to be distanced on the playground. But, yeah, then you're going to pack them all back into the classroom right after that. Uh, it, it just seems very contrary to what we've been trying to do for the last six months. Yeah, well, not to mention the mere fact of uh, how are you going to keep kids that are young enough to have recess actually distant from each other? So uh, there's a lot to like about uh, about the province's get-back-to-school plan. Um, I mean, my own research has shown that layering social distancing and masks within schools is extremely um, effective at keeping uh, uh, the spread of COVID um, from really gaining a lot of traction. But it seems to me that uh, that the province really hasn't uh, kind of gotten out of the high-level um, stratosphere thinking and down into the weeds to think about the the complicated details that uh, need to go into the logistics of planning this sort of thing you know like like you just uh like you just uh said what if there are more um students who elect to come back than um, allotted physical space in the school what happens then um one thing that was said during the uh, initial press conference announcing the back to school plan that i thought was uh pretty innovative was that uh teachers are allowed to opt to uh to work from home but then they'll be providing um online instruction and you know that sounds like a great idea but then you have to think about, okay, how are they really going to implement this? What are the logistics, right? If a teacher decides to stay home, but that teacher's entire class is at the school in person, does that mean a different teacher is going to be handling the in-person instruction and that the at-home teacher is going to be teaching something different uh, online? And, you know, that brings up a lot of questions about, um, you know, how can you ask teachers to so quickly spool up like an entirely new curriculum for uh, for an entire semester. I mean, as someone who teaches myself, that's a major part of my job at the University of Toronto, it is a lot of work to uh, to create a, a new course for just one semester, even when you're already very familiar with the material. So I don't know how we'd be expecting teachers to, to handle that sort of uh, transitory role um, on sh- such short notice. And, and your point's well taken. I don't I think anybody is saying, hey, toss this whole thing out, uh, because there are some benefits and, and some of the online learning and some of the uh, homeschooling that they've talked about, and they're going to try to make some allowances for that. And, and uh, But it, it just seems to really come down. The consistent problem here that they talk about is the size of the classrooms. Uh, and, and, you know, we can talk about masks and things of that nature, which I think are a very important part of this as well. But but you've got to wonder. I mean, it, you know, I, I'm asking us now getting into the weeds of the political head of this thing. Show me the science where there are 25 kids in the classroom is, is going to be a safe situation i don't think you can make that case yeah it's it's hard to make because there are a lot of unknowns um you know we, we can ask um you know all the the students fourth grade and up as a recommendation uh or as the plan to uh to have you know mandatory mask usage but um not everybody wears a mask correctly um definitely not all the time not even adults right so it's it's hard to expect that kids are going to be perfectly wearing their masks, not touching their faces, their masks, not taking, pulling them down to talk to each other. Um, so even if you can, you know, sort of uh, make a claim that, well, we're making sure that the students sit in their desk and they've been to, in their, the desk have been positioned in such a way that the students are as far apart as possible in the room, like there's still so much else going on, like so many moving parts to this whole thing that it's hard to know for certain uh, what's really going to happen. And I know I, for one, would really like to see 
uh, some more clarity about how class sizes are going to be enforced and maintained if more students choose to come back than are um, uh, physically allotted. Uh, and, you know, some information about uh, how students' movements within schools will be restricted because if you think about the change over, over between classes and, like, middle school, high school, you know, that's basically every kid in the school running through the halls, right? What exactly does the province have to, to make sure that, uh, you know, kids are staying in their you know, specific classes together and not really coming into interaction with, with other classrooms in order to keep things contained and to keep exposure as low as reasonably possible. I, I know that one of the arguments on the other side of this uh, is that, well, you know, there seems to be some evidence anyway uh, that maybe the virus is not as impactful on young children, especially as, as, as it does with adults and others. But uh, again, that's, that's shaky science at this point, and that may well be the case, that, that it may not uh, do short-term damage like it does to some of the other people. Uh, but young people have died of this in the states uh, and in and around the world. It hasn't happened in Canada, thank God, but it has in other jurisdictions. And we still don't know the long-term impact of this virus on our bodies. I mean, we, we're starting to hear evidence now that it, it does not just attack the respiratory system; that it attacks other parts of the body as well, and sometimes can have long-lasting effects. And we have heard stories about children and adults, for that matter, that are developing cardiac problems as a result of having the COVID virus. So, uh, it, this is this is not. You know, as, as some politicians have characterized it, a slam dunk that don't worry about it, the kids aren't going to get sick. Yeah, no, I mean, that is a, a, a just an absolute, absolutely shocking fallacy that a lot of petitions, uh, politicians keep trotting out that um, kids are somehow immune or, or not seriously impacted and it's no big deal if they get infected. Um, sure, there's plenty of evidence to suggest that uh, most children, obviously not all because many are dying, but most children don't experience COVID as severely as adults. But that doesn't mean that there aren't serious risks. You know, like you just mentioned, what about things that happen further down the road? I mean, we've seen even uh, like top athletes like that uh, baseball pitcher um, yeah. who ended up with myocarditis after, uh, after his um, COVID experience. Um, you know, younger people do get it. Younger people do suffer same damage um, as adults when their symptoms are severe and the long-term implications aren't known. And even if we can, you know, like, let's say just, you know, uh, setting aside science for the moment and just pretending to go along with um, the political claim that children are mostly unaffected. Children don't live exclusively at school. They go home. They're with their parents. Maybe they have grandparents that live in the house. Those people are potentially at risk or at very serious risk. And if the kids are having, you know, a mild uh, COVID um, uh, infection, they may be asymptomatic or might not be recognized and they can infect their entire household. And then that can further spread into the community. And, you know, it's just it's it's not the kids themselves that are the only concern. You know, this is a, a whole community um, decision. Everybody will be impacted by what ultimately happens in the schools. You know, when the shutdown first started uh, and, and you know, we can debate whether or not that was a smart thing to do. I think it was the only thing I think that kept those of the virus under control. Uh, along with the stuff that we're doing by uh, by self-distancing and, and the masking, of course. But they instructed, as a matter of fact, they demanded those stores that were allowed to remain open to follow certain protocols. And, and a lot of that cost a lot of money, putting, you know, the things up there, putting the signs on the floor, obviously, uh, you know, and... They retrofitted those stores to make sure that everybody was going to be as safe as they possibly could, and those things are still in effect. What, if anything, is the government doing about retrofitting their schools for our kids? Well, that's a really good question. Um, I well, time is growing. I, I haven't heard of, anything, of the actual, that's why I was asking. the actual school year, so I would think if there were more details that the government is going to bring out, they'd be coming out 
you know, very, very soon. But, uh, yeah, I haven't heard anything uh, about that. So, in truth, I, I don't know if the government has plans for that or if that's just, you know, one more thing that they're just a little bit hand-waving over uh, because they have a, you know, a policy that's good in theory, but, you know, they're not necessarily spending the time to work out uh, the details to make it implemented uh, correctly. Well, and therein lies the concern, I think. I mean, if I want to go to the grocery store when we finish our conversation here, uh, I've got to walk in, obviously wash my hands, I've got to have a mask on, I've got to follow the arrows on the floor to make sure I'm going down the aisle in the proper section, then I have to line up to go to a cash register. Uh, but I'm not hearing any of that protocol being put in place for school systems when they come back in there, or whether there's going to be barriers up there. Uh, and I've heard some concerns, and I think they're legitimate concerns, Professor, and I'm sure you're probably feeling the same way uh, when the, the universities start opening up again. What about the protections for the teachers, the people that are at the front of the classroom who may well be prone to it uh, and, and spreading the virus? And this, it just seems as if they say, no, this is going to be fine now, which smacks to me of, of, of what I'm hearing from an awful lot of people that say, well, the worst is behind us, and it isn't. Yeah, um, you know, I think I think a lot of the universities are, are taking um, individual approaches. Yeah. Um, I know at uh, University of Toronto, um, the different faculties like applied science and engineering versus arts and science are are allowed to come up with their own specific plans within some general guidelines. Um, for me, at least uh, in engineering, um, I can uh, choose to teach my classes 100% remotely. Uh, which is actually what I will be doing this semester, just because, like I said, there's a lot of moving parts, and um, you know, I don't my my courses don't actually require a hands-on uh, like lab material um, right now, so it's it's easy, it's an easy decision uh, to make. And uh, and in engineering, um, all of us are actually required to ensure that our courses are fully completable online, that there are no mandatory in-person components, so that if any students are not comfortable coming in or they're still trapped, you know, halfway around the world due to uh, travel restrictions, um, that they can still complete their courses. And, and I think a lot of universities are uh, in Canada are, are trying to come up with, with models um, along those lines that allow people the flexibility to make personal health decisions and still be able to do their jobs as either um, a professor or a student. Yeah, we have a daughter who's finishing her master's right now, and it's all, it's all done online and, and, and with you know, Skype, of course, if she wants to talk to, to one of the professors or something like that. And it's doable but at, at that age, but when you're talking about eight- or nine-year-olds, uh, it's a different scenario altogether, and I'm just wondering about the, the safety issues involved in this. So wh where does yeah. this all go? Or do we wait until things get bad and say, boy, we shouldn't have done this? Because some jurisdictions down in the States that have opened er earlier uh, have seen spikes like this and had to reconsider whether or not this was a smart way to go. Oh, yeah. I mean, schools opened in uh, in the U.S. and almost immediately many of them had to shut back down because of uh, outbreaks uh, just ravaging through uh, through their student population. Um, I, I think it's much better to um, have very strong measures in place, to be very, very cautious, even overly cautious. And uh, nothing bad happens. And then everybody is upset uh, at the government for overreacting later than to underreact and then have a lot of um, people with lifelong health consequences or even death um, weighing, um, weighing down our, our community. And, uh, you know, that, in my mind, is, is much worse than, than overreacting. And I know that the argument that uh, we've heard from some of the people in the Ford administration and other 
provincial governments, by the way, is, well, look, we've got to get the kids back to school. We can't get, you know, stay hidden in the basement, I think, as one of them said, uh, forever and ever. And I, I get that. We understand that. Uh, because I think parents want to get back to work. They want to see their kids get back to school, and they want to see their education continue. But the question, I think, legitimately being asked here is, are we doing it in the safest possible measures? Uh, you know, is, is, is this the measured approach that we have? And have we learned from the, some of those jurisdictions that you just referenced that didn't do it properly and are paying a price for it? Yeah, well, I mean, certainly the way it was done in the U.S. was uh, with very little in the way of restrictions. Um, so certainly, uh, I think doing anything will put us in a better position than uh, than most school districts in the U.S. Um, but yeah, it's not just—it's not only a matter of you know, is this a good plan that the province is putting forward, but is it a good plan right now? Um, because COVID is changing, and we're actually you know in in the our wave of the outbreak where things are really getting quite low. Um, you know, the province has had under 100 cases for the past several days. Um, Toronto's been around 20 for the past several days. I mean, not including uh, yesterday's spike of 43, uh, although it is kind of fun to say that uh, 43 cases is a spike. Um, but uh, you almost have to wonder, like, it almost feels like maybe we're getting really close to, to eradicating COVID in the province. And if that's the case, maybe we should even just wait a month before going back to school and then maybe we might be able to go back with even fewer restrictions and uh, and have everything be a lot easier to implement and uh, and understand for both uh, parents teachers and students well because of of the potential for what might happen and and you know dr tam on this side of the border dr fauci down in the states i mean have both warned us that you know going back to school there's probably going to be some kind of a spike we don't know how dramatic that's going to be with new cases and you're also heading in, as we all know, into flu season when you get into the fall season as well. Uh, and that could be a perfect storm that could cause all sorts of problems. So, I mean, it, we've got to be cautious about exactly what we're going to do because, it's, as you say, it's awfully difficult to try to pull the plug. I wouldn't want to go back to a total shutdown like we had in March, but yeah, are we forcing ourselves to go down that road? Yeah, I mean, and I would hate to think that we're forcing ourselves to go down that road simply for lack of child care options for, for our kids. Like, maybe mm-hmm. that's somewhere where the province could be focusing uh, uh, efforts in this, um, uh, I guess maybe we'll call it a transition to normalcy uh, kind of period. That way, that way, more slow, measured um, returns to school could be rolled out, maybe in phases, um, while still allowing parents to go to work if they need to and know that their kid is going to be uh, taken care of. Uh, I could probably keep you here till five o'clock this afternoon talking <laughs> about childcare and, and the need for it and the necessity for it and the, the reticence that the government seems to have. But we'll we'll do that another time. Always a pleasure, Professor. Thank you so much for the time today. Thank you for having me. Take care. That's uh, Professor Dion Aylman from the University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The big news, of course, uh, that uh, seemingly the whole world was waiting to hear one way or another. Uh, Kamala Harris is in as the vice presidential candidate uh, to run with Joe Biden on the Democratic ticket. And uh, she, of course, has had a, had a very, very high profile over the last little while. And uh, a lot of folks, well, put it this way, have some pretty strong opinions. But uh, Kamala Harris herself, well, she thinks she's in the right place at the right time. I am supporting Joe because I believe that he is a man who has lived his life with great dignity. Um, he is a, a public servant who has always worked for the best of who we are as a nation and we need that right now there is so much at stake in this election guys so what kind of an impact will the uh, Kamala Harris uh, candidacy have on this U.S. election? Joining us to talk about this is uh, Richard Painter. Richard is uh, S.W. Walter Ritchie, Professor of Corporate Law at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. Uh, professor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. 
Well, absolutely. Uh, glad to join you. Well, let's talk a little bit about the impact that Kamala Harris has had on this campaign, uh, going all the way back to, uh, to when she was a Democratic uh, running for the presidency herself. Uh, she butted heads with Joe Biden, uh, and a lot of folks thought, well, that pretty much precludes any chance of these guys getting together on the same team, but here they are. Well, absolutely, but she's a very good debater. Uh, she made, way, you know, one or two strategic uh, mistakes, I think, uh, in terms of what, uh, you know, or what she was going to go after Joe Biden on. Uh, which, uh, you know, fell flat. But uh, the bottom line is she's an extremely good debater uh, and very intelligent. Uh, and uh, she's obviously going to do very well uh, against uh, Vice President Pence. Uh, so I, I think that she's an excellent choice. She has a, a distinguished career as a prosecutor and as a United States senator and uh, is extremely articulate. Uh, so uh, she's a very good match. Joe Biden, he's a, he's a big boy. He's not going to uh, uh, get all worked up about uh, something she said in the, in the debates. And, and he came out on top. So let her be the vice president and, and see how this goes. Professor, do the pundits put too much uh, onus on, on those comments that get made during those early debates? I mean, if you want to go back about four and a half years or so, uh, when the Republicans were trying to find a, a, a nominee for president, uh, people like Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham and others said some horrific things about Donald Trump. That, by the way, turned out to be true, but, but those, they're, they're two of his strongest allies now. I mean, politics is, is rather weird that way. Well, yes, uh, politics is weird that way, but the, the difference here is that uh, you know, there really wasn't much of a legitimate criticism of Joe Biden, what he had done in the 70s, and to try and rework what, how we all responded to the various crises of the 70s, uh, and, and school busing, forced busing, just that everybody was against anyway. Uh, but that's not the way to respond to uh, the crisis of Donald Trump being in the White House in 2020. It's the focus on what we've got going on right now. So. Uh, you know, I think that was a mistake for Kamala Harris, but uh, there's no way that uh, Joe Biden would ever hold that against her. Uh, you know, she's extremely articulate. She understands the issues today, and uh, she'll be very, very good uh, vice president, potentially a, a good future president. We're learning more about Kamala Harris. I think, you know, when she was a, a presidential candidate, we certainly... Was, were taken, I, I think, by her her presence that, and and of course, as you say, her her performances as a as an attorney general in California and certainly as a senator. Uh, I, I got to tell you, Professor, we take a little pride in that because apparently, I just found out this morning she went to high school in Montreal. Uh, her mother had took a, a position at McGill University there for what five years, and that's where she went to high school. So uh, there's a little bit of Canada, I guess, in Kamala Harris. Maybe that's why she, she seems to be attracted to so many people these days. But let, let's talk about her performances uh, in what is going to be a rather contentious uh, race. Uh, the, the, the Trump-Pence team versus the Biden-Kamala Harris team. Uh, I must have seen a hundred times last night on different news networks uh, that now famous clip of uh, Senator Harris uh, grilling uh, Bill Barr uh, at his uh, confirmation hearing and uh, looking very prosecutorial. But you're going to need that sort of an attitude in, in this kind of a race, aren't you? Well, absolutely. That's what, that's what we do need. We need somebody who's going to zero in on uh, what's fundamentally wrong with this administration. Uh, and Kamala Harris is perfect for that. I mean, one of the problems with the Democratic debates is they were all just talking their views on issues all the time, all trying to get to the left of the other person in order to uh, you know, take it away from Joe Biden. Uh, and I think a lot of voters tuned out on that. Uh, the, the key issue here is regardless of your views on issues, whether it's uh, 
health care or whatever. There's something fundamentally wrong with the Trump administration and the way they are approaching uh, their job and politicizing the Department of Justice under Bill Barr and the way they lie about essential facts. That needs to be the message here. And Kamala Harris is the perfect person for that message. And too little of it came out in the Democratic debates. But it's going to come out in these debates. And, and I think she's going to be very effective. And Bill Barr is the poster child for abuse of power in, in the cabinet of Donald Trump. Uh, everything he's been doing, from counter-investigations that are destroying our intelligence community, uh, to uh, his uh, intervening in prosecutions, Roger Stone and Michael Flynn, uh, his handling the Russia investigation. Uh, Kamala Harris is the perfect person to take him apart. Well, and she's got a track record. We mentioned the, the situation with Bill Barr during the confirmation hearing. Actually, her first speech uh, on the Senate floor uh, was to, to give us her comments about Betsy DeVos, who was the uh, education uh, secretary, of course, that Trump had put in place there. And basically, talk, she went on a great length about how unqualified she was. I mean, uh, her, Betsy DeVos's claim to fame is she's a neighbor of Donald Trump's down in Florida. doesn't have a whole lot else going in education. And, and that seemed to set the tone for Kamala Harris. And I'm, I'm sure that's the tone she's going to carry through this campaign. Oh, absolutely. Uh, but she's going to zero in on the incompetency, the selfishness, the corruption, conflict of interest uh, of this administration. And whether you got Betsy DeVos, who's a billionaire, who doesn't even believe in public education. She just focuses on right-wing uh, so-called religious education and, and various niche uh, uh, elements. Uh, and she has no business running the Department of Education. Uh, we've got a Treasury Secretary who just made a killing of the 2008 financial crisis while everyone else is getting thrown out of their homes, uh, and, uh, you know, who caters to speculators. Uh, uh, it goes on and on and on, and Kamala Harris is going to be able to take these people apart one by one, all the way up uh, to the man who's in charge, uh, and, and take on Donald Trump. So I think that prosecutorial instinct that she's got is going to be extremely helpful and, uh, you know, she's going to be much, much better than in the Democratic debate. For as I say, I think they were all just trying to be more politically correct than the other person. And uh, they weren't really focusing on Trump. Once she focuses on Trump, uh, he's in a heck of a lot of trouble. Professor, how important is the VP role? I mean, when people actually go to the polls, and we'll talk about that in just a minute, uh, do they vote for a VP to get, or is it, is it the person on top that actually will attract or not attract the voters? Well, I, I think having a very good VP is important. Uh, we all remember what happened to John McCain, who yeah. was an extremely good Republican candidate, uh, and he chose Sarah Palin, who was just a uh, really pretty pathetic uh, vice presidential choice. Uh, and it dragged that campaign way down in 2008 and uh, helped put uh, President Obama in the White House. Uh, we've had very powerful vice presidents. I was in the Bush administration as the chief ethics lawyer in 2005 to seven, and we all know that Vice President Cheney had uh, uh, perhaps more than the usual influence of a vice president around there. Uh, and then we've had vice presidents have uh, the more traditional role, and that's what I think Vice President Biden did during the Obama years, uh, of giving very serious input on policy, but letting the president, uh, you know, drive the car. Um, you know, I, I think there's a range of different approaches with vice presidents. Uh, and I, I think Kamala Harris would fit the more traditional model of, Giving input on policy, uh, but letting Joe Biden be in charge, and uh, she's younger. If she wants to run for president in the future, I mean, there could be plenty of opportunities. 
let's, let's talk a little bit, since I've got you, and I'm glad, so glad you had some time for us today, Professor, uh, about voting in and of itself. There's, uh, there's somebody new running the Postal Service down there these days, uh, another Trump appointee, who essentially seems to be uh, tearing the whole system apart and making it very, very difficult, if not impossible, for uh, mail-in voting, which has been around since the Civil War, but uh, all of a sudden apparently it's a bad thing and it's uh, leading to corruption, according to Trump. Uh, but he's got his finger on the button right now. What, what kind of an impact is that kind of an attitude going to have uh, when it comes to mail-in voting, which is probably going to take on even more significance now uh, because of COVID, and people are, may not feel safe actually going standing in line for five hours to vote. It's a serious problem, uh, and it's something I'm, I'm looking at right now with a group of experts uh, with the Center for uh, Ethics and the Rule of Law at the University of Pennsylvania, and there we're going to have a program on on voting and uh, interference with elections in September. And bottom line here is that uh, the president's effort to dismantle the post office and discourage mail-in voting um, is obviously politically driven. Uh, we know that a Republican's uh, support mail-in voting when they think they're going to win. In Alaska, they sent out uh, mail-in ballots to people uh, over 65, I believe. And they also would vote Republican. Uh, so this is obviously politically driven. Uh, and to destroy the Postal Service um, and discourage mail-in voting is a fundamental threat to our democracy. There is very little risk of fraud and mail-in voting if it's handled correctly. Uh, and that needs to be a top priority. And I've urged that. I, I think that uh, a number of experts in the field have made it very, very clear uh, that, uh, particularly COVID-19 and everything, uh, we're not going to have a legitimate election unless there is a mail-in voting and there's access to mail-in voting and those ballots arrive on time. Uh, and the post office, they have it run by a Trump donor uh, who wants to basically shut everything down through November 4. I mean, that's not going to be acceptable. Do American voters understand the hypocrisy when Trump says that uh, that mail-in voting is going to lead to fraud? And he does, uh, but he himself is going to be well. He says absentee voting because he obviously his residence is Florida and he's not going to be there for the vote. So he's he says that's okay. Well, how do you think the absentee ballot gets there? It gets mailed. I mean, it's it's the same process. It's just it's good for him, but not good for anybody else. Yeah, everybody knows what's going on. He wants people to vote for him to vote. Everyone else to be intimidated, staying home. So. He wants people not to send in their mail-in ballots, and then uh, come November, he's going to spread fear through particularly the urban areas, uh, you know, that if you're uh, in an urban area, you're a minority or uh, whatever, that if you go to the polls, you're going to get COVID-19, uh, and so get everyone to stay home. I mean, that's what he wants to do, suppress the vote. And once again, to uh, take over the U.S. Postal Service and, and destroy that from within, uh, have a Trump donor in charge, and then try to put pressure on the states not to have mail-in voting. Uh, it, it's a fundamental threat to our democracy. And uh, so we have a lot of people are focusing on this right now. It's very serious uh, and needs to be confronted. I'm looking at voter turnout, and that's always the key thing on election night. I'm I'm one of these guys that stays up all night, and I might well be doing that again on November 3rd uh, to try to determine what's going on. But there are some a lot of disenchanted people and many disenchanted Republicans uh, that have turned their back on Trump. Uh, I'm, I'm just wondering, because I remember, well, historically, of course, you had what they called Reagan Democrats, people that were disenchanted with the Democratic Party and decided to vote for Ronald Reagan, even though they were still Democrats. Are there Biden Republicans out there that, in this upcoming election that just, just want Trump out of there? I mean, I, I look at the... Uh, 
commentators like, well, David Frum, Bill Crystal, George Will, so many others who are, let's face it, small C conservative and oftentimes Republican members and supporters uh, who have just quite out said, look, we got to get this guy out of here. Uh, the Lincoln Project, of course, is a movement of Republicans and small C conservatives that are trying to get rid of Trump. How, how powerful is that movement? Oh, it is very powerful. I mean, the people such as myself, I, mean, I was a Republican for 30 years. Uh, I got out of the Republican Party in 2018. I, I just could not stomach it anymore. Uh, I'm more of a moderate Republican. In the old days, they would have called me a liberal Republican, a moderate. But uh, then there's the arch-conservatives, such as George Conway, my law school classmate, uh, who helped launch the Lincoln Project, uh, uh, much to the dismay of his wife, Kellyanne, there. Uh, but George and his friends are... Very conservative, much more conservative in many respects than I would be. Uh, but they also have turned on Trump because he's a threat to our security. I mean, uh, when I first met George, we would sit around and talk about the dangers of the Russians trying to infiltrate our government uh, and uh, uh, the fact that we we're ignoring uh, the dangers from the Russians. It's back when we were in law school in the 1980s, well, what's going on now? You got the Russians infiltrating the government. And the attorney general, instead of going after the people collaborating with the Russians, is going after the people who blew the whistle on uh, This is a, uh, to our democracy. It's going to be fascinating to watch, and uh, the lead up to it now with Kamala Harris on the team and 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 uh, her attitude and and, and the, the, I think the, the the talent that she brings to the race here. Uh, when you look at it, there was a, so, some pretty talented folks and some very qualified people that were on that short list. But was it inevitable, Professor, that it was going to be Kamala Harris? Well, yeah, this is very good, too. I, mean, I was always a fan of Elizabeth Warren. Yeah. She's much more liberal on some issues than I am, but I think that I was always a fan of her analytical ability. She's the candidate. I thought I, you know, I supported for, for the presidency. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of talented people out there. There could be a time for Elizabeth Warren also in the future. Uh, uh, you know, we're, we're getting old, have older and older presidents. People hopefully keeping healthy in their older years. And <laughs> uh, I think there's a lot of time still left for someone like Elizabeth Warren. Uh, and, uh, there's some other talented candidates too. But eventually you gotta choose one. And then you gotta have to choose a number two. And you gotta go, gotta get in there. It's, uh, it's going to be quite the race, uh, and it kicks into gear, of course, now uh, with the convention starting next week and uh, the Republican convention, wherever that's going to be and wherever he's going to make a speech from. But we'll sure talk about that uh, once we get some uh, clearer facts about that. Professor, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you Take so care. much. You betcha. That's uh, Professor Richard Painter, of course, from the University of Minnesota in the Twin Cities. Uh, things ramping up in the U.S. Uh, presidential election. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.